Well, we'll see how things work. Since we're dealing with electronics, it could really be interesting. <clears throat> uh, what we're going to do is I'm just going to point out a few things that uh, this presents, and I'm going to try to follow the script because there are so many potentials for rabbit trails that it's, uh, it would be hard to get through it in the rest of the day. So uh, I'm going to leave a lot of things out probably, something you may want to know, something that you don't even care about, and that's fine too. It won't bother me either way. Uh, but I'm going to look at mainly at how God sees his creation and what the Bible has to say, because whenever we come to cosmology, astronomy, geology, and biology, all of the ologies, we find that God has done something here that is noticeable and it's not just a simple, um, uh, everything is very simple. Even, even a blood cell is an amazing thing. And one of the things that you may have noticed, I don't know if you, if you have periodicals that you read about science, you may have noticed that there are very few mentions anymore. There used to be a lot of them. But it stopped about uh, six or seven years ago. It just all of a sudden cut off. You didn't hear anything about microbiology. The thing is, it's very condemning because we've got this idea, or we're trying to be fed the idea, that everything has evolved and it all makes itself. the only way it could be done and it has to be done at one time and so it's a uh, it's important that that you we understand that and then we're going to look at this thing called redshift uh, redshift is a uh, uh, a cosmological uh, shift that light takes and we're going to try and determine what it is and some of the interpretation of it and how it affects a lot of the theories that are out there there are a lot of theories Everybody today has a theory about something. Uh, and that goes for the scientific community as well. They've got lots and lots of theories. And then we're going to look at telescopes and see how they've developed over the last 50 to 100 years and how, is this even working? Well, let me push on it again. How about that? Can you, can, you hear, can you hear that now? Well, I don't know. Ah, there we go. All right. See, electronics. Okay. All right. So now we're getting, we're getting better. Um, then we're going to look at telescopes and see what we can learn from them. Obviously cutting out, huh? Well... Let's go to this. Okay. Uh, and so we're going to, I'm going to try and uh, walk through this as quickly as I can, and we'll look at the, these various uh, different aspects about the, uh, the, the basically cosmology, and uh, we'll just, we'll keep going as best we can. I don't want to keep you here all day, but we're going to look at time and space and the cosmologies, and cosmology is just... Uh, a great big word for how people have defined how the cosmos works, 
what theories that they use and that sort of thing, how they, how they play in the uh, way things happened, what, what, what happens. And so uh, we have the main thing is that we come to the creation of the universe as we come to the Bible first. This is often, uh, you know, it's much like what people would say sometimes, well, when all else fails, pray. Now, it should be the other way around. Uh, we, we should go to the Bible first and see what God has to say and then look at how we can see around us how it fits. So, in, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what Genesis 1-1 tells us. And so we have, we have a number of other things. All things were made by him, and for, without him was not anything made that was made. And, and we have uh, Isaiah, and I just uh, trespassed something here. It's, it's, it's okay, we'll get there. Okay. So I just have to keep my fingers off of all these pieces up here. Uh, so, so what we have is we're seeing that God created everything and we can go and trust him in that and he is the one that sits on the circle of the earth he stretches out the, uh, the heavens with, his, with a, like a curtain and spreads out the, the, them like a tent to dwell in and so what we have here is a picture uh, poetically in some cases definitively in others that God made everything that was made now, whether it's made from, and there's a big, big argument between made from nothing and made from something. Now, I have news for you. God can make something from nothing, and he can make nothing from something, and he can make something more out of something. So God made everything. He made it. Now, whether he made it from something he had previously created and made from nothing, uh, that remains to be to be seen. And so in, in the cosmos theories, we have this white hole. Now, you probably haven't heard of something like this. I have to admit, when I was looking around, it's the reverse of a black hole. You know, that's sort of a, a duh. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, it means that it blasts energy outward. Now, when does it do that? How does it do that? you will find with most of the philosophies that we have for the cosmos, uh, we're expected to believe something that doesn't make sense. But that's okay. That's the way most of this is. So we're going to talk about this white hole and how this was even thought of in a, in a few slides down the road here. Our Carmelian cosmology is, is, was developed by... Moshe Carmeli, and he proposed a five-dimension universe, length, width, height, time, and velocity. Now, that in itself should uh, pique your interest. And so we have, a, we have extremely ex uh, rapid expansion during creation after the clocks are moving like crazy, very fast, or at the edge of space. And uh, we have this thing called inflation or expansion. It depends on who you talk to, whether it's inflation, whether it's expansion. This came, up, this came about early in the process, probably back in the 50s and 60s. They had to try to explain why or how the universe expanded to what it is now. 
if we just go back, you see, if we just go back to what God said, he stretched it out. Now, this is a big space out there, by the way, folks. It's a big space. It goes on forever, it would seem. It's huge. And so we have here that light travels by our clocks would be short, but the cosmic clocks would be billions of years old. Uh, and this is a further theoretical extension of general le- relativity. And we are not going to discuss relativity tonight. Okay? We aren't. We aren't going to take it on. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. Uh, we have the biz- biblical cosmology can then be generally distilled down into God created from nothing and everything was made by him. Now, we're, we're looking at speed of light conventions. Uh, you know that uh, the speed of light is an average speed and we measure the round trip speed, not the direct, not the direct single direction speed because we don't have any way of measuring it. I mean, if you stood here and I stood there and we clicked the stopwatch, it would be very hard for us to understand how fast light travels. And besides that, this speed is really, uh, it's a a chosen speed. It's an arbitrary speed, Uh, 186,000 miles per second. Uh, And so you can have physics is okay with any combination that equals 671 million miles an hour or 586,262 miles per second. Uh, that, means, that means it could go faster coming toward us and slower reflecting back or any combination of those things, but it has to come to that total. That's what happens. So it's, it's and, 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 even, and even this, is, uh, falls under question when you, you get into the, the, the speed of things and the distances that things travel, uh, maybe there's a possibility there's more to it than we understand. The speed of light is an essential constant in many mathematical equations, and so it had to be decided on what is the C speed going to be, the constant. The, uh, the, the, the constant was decided to be 186,000 miles a second. So, if this convention is true, that light can go pretty much faster one direction than the other without violating any physical laws, then it's going to help us understand a little bit better how light comes from distant stars. And this would allow supernovas and astronomical events to be seen in near real time. See, we, we look up and we see a lot of things happening. But if they are as far away as they're claimed to be, we shouldn't be seeing them in our lifetime. So something is going on there. And I will not pretend to know the answer to that. That is something that's very, that's probably my biggest uh, question is, how do we see these events happening that are near to us? I don't know. You say, well, you're supposed to know. Hmm, no. Uh, time dilation is uh, one of the theories for light. And uh, 
it proposes that you know billions of years will pass in deep space and only a few days will elapse in uh, on the earth okay so this is basically fundamental Carmelian theology philosophy and also general relativity supports that too. We also have the speed of light decay. Now there are those, and there seems to be some support for it, there are those who believe that after day four of the creation period, when God created the sun and the moon and the, that that is when light moved from a much faster speed to a lower speed so that we can see all of the stuff that's out in the, the uh, universe, the light coming to us. Because even, uh, even if, even if the, the opening and moving and expanding of the universe was done at even a moderately fast rate, it would probably be faster than we would ever see because it's so big. It's enormous. So, uh, needless to say, there are a lot of unanswered questions. Now, this is kind of a, uh, this was a spoof back in the 50s and 60s that, uh, well, the reason we can see those is God created individual little light beams from every star, and they, they all come in, and they're, they're going really fast. Well, there's a problem if you have a supernova and the thing blows up. How did you see it before it got there? And a lot of problems. So nothing is really as clear cut as we might want to think. Now redshift is a, is a phenomenon that happens with light in extremely distant and long distances, long, long ways away. Now. Uh, just talking with, with Pastor about we get confused by the the way we measure light. We used to measure it in we used we're used to measuring things in miles per hour, minutes per second, uh, different things like this. But when it comes to the distances in space, you see we we go 43 million miles from the sun till we get to Mercury. And then we go 50-some million miles till we get to Venus. And then we wind up at Earth when we're 93 million miles away. And you see, we get to a billion miles, 100 million, really quick. And, and we haven't even gotten out of the solar system yet. So then it decides, well, let's, we got to have something bigger. So they use parsecs. Oh, wow, this is, this is good. Parsecs really work great. Except when you're going past Alpha Centauri and you're heading toward uh, either Andromeda or you're going out to Magellan or you're going way out there somewhere. Uh, well, okay, now parsecs aren't going to work so hot either. So we've got to have something bigger than that. Well, why don't we come up with something that is the distance light travels in one year? Oh, this sounds good. This sounds good. Well, we get really confused easily because if something is 10 million light years away, we assume, and it gets assumed very easily, well, it's 10 million years later. It's out there 10 million years. We're looking back in time. Well, we're not actually a time machine. 
but we'll talk about this a little bit later. But you see the wavelength for visible light is between 700 nanometers and 380 nanometers. The blue side is 380 and the red side is 700. We don't see well past those. In fact, most of us don't see ultraviolet very well and we don't see into even near infrared. We, we just, we don't see it. Our, our vision is limited. I mean, we can, we can see uh, red, yellow, green. They all have markers on them. All elements have markers on them, the colors that they are. Hydrogen can be determined by a spectrum analysis as to whether it's hydrogen or not by the, by the colors that it gives off. And so a, a spectrum uh, analyzer, and that's about the only thing that can analyze a lot of things, is something that's electronic because we can't even see it. And so we just have this narrow window that we can see. Now. There is a problem here because Doppler effect is what is basically causing us to have difficulty. When, when Hubble and Slofer and I dropped a couple of other things, uh, a number of people who were, we get hooked back on, uh, a, number of, a number of scientists that were looking at the light, they have found, they were seeing, well, we think what we're looking at is the Doppler effect. Now, Doppler, Christian Doppler, who gave us the, the background and all of the, the physics for the, the Doppler effect, is dealing with sound in an atmosphere. So, this, this sound, when you've, you've all heard it, you hear the siren going behind you somewhere or off to your left, and you listen, and it starts moving, and the pitch starts getting higher and higher, and all of a sudden, there it is. And then it starts to taper off on the other side. But you see, really, the, the siren did not change its frequency. You are the one that saw the distortion of it building up against you that raised its pitch and when it got by, it lowered it. So it's really distortion that we're hearing when we hear Doppler effect. Now light on the other hand uh, has only the ability to, sh to shift to the red. And that's something when, when they look out in the telescope and we'll look at some of the reasons why telescopes are so fantastic and they're also um, they're also seen as not showing everything somebody wanted to see. Uh, we look out and we see way, way, way out in the distance that the red shift is shifting more to the red. Now, it, it takes long distances. I mean, we're talking a billion light years or more for about a 2% change in the uh, shift of the, of the light. And so this is, this is what is, uh, okay. So, so the Doppler effect, it, it, it's, has, it has two, it's, there are two different phenomena. One is sound waves that requires the medium of either air, water, solids of some sort to propagate through. And the redshift that applies to light, which light has zero mass, 
which makes it not affected by gravity. It travels in a straight line at a constant speed and doesn't require a medium through which to travel. It doesn't, it doesn't take those things. So now, th this, this issue was brought uh, to bear uh, in 1919 in St. Louis between uh, Einstein and the Newtonian uh, gravity. They, they, did, they, they both were, were looking at the solar eclipse and trying to determine uh, who was, what was the most accurate. Einstein's field equations or the theory that uh, uh, Isaac Newton had postulated. And so they went through the process and looked at all of this and their calculations were within 0.87 arc seconds of each other. And it was determined that Einstein was the winner and he became the darling of the scientific community from that point on. Well, we shoot spaceships into orbit by Newtonian gravity. We do not ship them by Einsteinian gravity because we need to know exactly where these uh, large, large masses are and how they affect the shrink. You know, you, you've, you've seen even sci-fi uh, sci movies where they are going to slingshot around a planet and go zooming off somewhere else. Well, you can't do that uh, without knowing exactly what you're dealing with and the mass of the, of the material you're going around. So <clears throat> we have then the cosmic redshift is the prevailing theory, and it has been that way for the last 100 years. Well, now, if you change this theory, this is what you do. You, you mess around with the Big Bang, you mess around with Hubble's law, with expansion and inflation, with 4D space and time, even general relativity gets messed with, dark matter, dark energy, the cosmic microwave background, gravitational waves, and the Higgs boson theory. So, the likelihood of changing all of this overnight or ever changing it is really pretty small. But there are scientists that are out there, even today, that are working on alternate explanations for the events that we see, and mainly the red shift. Because if red shift is unique to light, and it's not the Doppler effect, then there are some things that we, we have a problem with. And so we have now that light travels this 186,000 miles per second and at extreme distance, it attenuates about 2.75% per billion light years that it's out. Then, then we have, we, we, we see that the color spectrum shows that light always shifts red. It never shifts blue. Now you can measure blue things, but the light itself is shifting toward the red. That's what it's doing. So we have this, we have this uh, phenomenon that, uh, so if we have redshift discovered today, it is, it's assumed to mean that the object is moving away from us, 
very rapidly and recently in the last probably 10 years we've had dark matter and dark energy come into the picture and they even cause it to accelerate. Now it gets to be a problem because and I have no idea what we're going to come up with next but it's accelerating too fast. It's estimated that it's going to come apart. Well that means we got to have something to slow it down and that's what dark energy was supposed to do but it doesn't seem to be doing it quite as well as they thought and so that means redshift if it's a Doppler effect then the, the universe is possibly proven true to be expanding but if it's not then the basic universe is static and believe it or not when, when we come to relativity and, and Einstein his original theories were based on a static universe and he was convinced by the discoveries of both Hubble and Lemaitre that it was expanding and we, you will remember that there's a cosmological constant that was Einstein's constant to make his equations work the way they needed to but when it was determined or supposedly determined that space was the entire space was expanding then he no longer needed that constant because the expansion took care of the problem very convenient uh, and then there are orbits for most objects of the universe that would allow them with possible interaction over time. People say a static, that does not mean everything stops. We have things that are orbiting, our galaxy is even turning, we don't notice it, we don't know that it's doing that, but it is, it's turning. And there are those people who think that uh, if we had another 100 billion years that uh, our galaxy would either spin itself tight or it would come up, fling itself apart. Uh, you can pick the the people that you want to give you the, the line that you most uh, desire to hear. Now, we come to what, is, what do telescopes see? This sheds quite a bit of light on, on uh, what's going on. So you see that the visible light is this spectrum right here. It, that's, what, that's what we see. This is the Hubble telescope right here. This is the Hubble telescope. And so this is all ultraviolet, visible light, and hot, uh, basically near infrared. Now you can see this, this telescope right here is going to cause some interesting challenges and a problem. That happens to be the James Webb telescope. It is, it is a it is specifically designed to be a far infrared. Now, you know, so that, that's this right here. This is far infrared, way out here. The wavelength, the wavelength is increasing. Uh, the frequency is decreasing. And so you have, you, you have, uh, you're, you're, you're seeing lots of this stuff. And you can see a lot of things out there. We have Earth-based telescopes. Now this is kind of interesting because most of us are familiar with like Mount Palomar, Mount Wilson. Um, some of you may know about the Arecibo radio telescope that they had in Puerto Rico. 
for quite a bit. It's been defunct now probably for 10, 15 years. Uh, it collapsed. It was a radio telescope that they used for uh, listening into space and listening to the microwave background and uh, trying to determine various aspects of it. Uh, the Andes are a good place for, the, for a lot of the, uh, the mountains. But now, there's a European extremely large telescope that's 39 meters, and you can do the math on that. That's 128.7 feet or something like that. That's a big, that's a big dish, okay? It's a big dish. It's basically as long as the front of this building to the back. That's how big this thing is. It's huge, really big. This, this is sitting now. Now, you also notice it's in the Atacama Desert. And that's in northern Chile near Antofagasta. Okay? 20 miles out of Antofagasta, you can drive, uh, well, you have to drive rather circuitously around mountains and valleys and so forth. You can get to these mountains, these, these high points that are in the, the Atacama Desert the mountains up against the away from the away from the ocean and they're as high up as they can get them and that's where they're building numerous telescopes in fact right now there are at least five or so there that are working currently this one is still under construction it's a it's a big thing it's a well yeah it's a big beast and so it's it's a it's a 12-year project, and they're in the seventh or eighth year of it right now. So they're not finished with it yet. But the beauty of these things is that they are learning how to use segmented mirrors. That's a very big key thing. And so you, uh, you have lower Earth orbit, and that's like where the space station is. There were small telescopes like the Spitzer's telescope, but the Hubble's telescope was in low orbit as well, and it went up in 1990. So it's been working out there for quite a few years, up almost 30 years now. And so we have, we have this uh, amazing uh, piece of, of equipment that, is, that got shot up into the sky, and before this, there was nothing really uh, effective to to let them isolate pictures and look deep into space and expose for long periods of time and not have uh, the light pollution of the earth and all those other kinds of things that went on and so this was a pretty amazing uh, telescope in fact we've used it for many years the pictures that first started coming back from this were just astounding the things we could see and the resolution was amazing as well. Well, now there's, there's high Earth, higher than Earth orbit, or the ISS, and this is where they've put the James Webb Telescope. And uh, this, is, this was uh, look, shot up on December 25th in 2020, 21, from French Guiana. It's got a 6.5 meter mirror. You can multiply that out. That's about 20 feet. Now, uh, that's a pretty good sized mirror. Basically, it would touch the top of the building here. It would fit in here. This is, that's, that's the size of that mirror. The, the gondola that it's sitting on that isolates it from the sun on either side is about 110 feet long, which would take it to the back of our church clear out to the front. 
So that's, that's the kind of size that we're dealing with. Now, the L2 Lagrange point, we're going to look at in a little bit. I'll show you where that is. That is, uh, that, that's an interesting place for it to be. Now, there's a high-definition telescope, and this is the telescope that is the replacement, actually, for the Hubble telescope. The Hubble is a, is a, is a small, uh, you know, two-point-something two meter. Uh, this is an 11.7 meter. This is a big dish. Now, the reason for that is to gather more light. If they, the more light that they gather and they concentrate it into the, the cone in the center of the dish that's there, then they can see more clearly. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting phenomenon. You see it's ultraviolet, near-infrared, and visible light. They're not even trying to go out where the James Webb telescope does. It's not, not trying. No. Actually, it's probably best that they don't, but at any rate. Uh, so, I, uh, I wonder what I've done. All right, we'll, we'll be back in a second. So this high-definition telescope has a feature that was developed on what is known as the Keck telescope. I'll show you a picture of it. But they have found a way, a new technology, that lets them figure out the plates that the, the telescope is made of can actually be, can actually be bent. They can, they can be just a little, not anywhere near what I, movement I'm making. But they can be moved enough that they can focus. And so this, this is the James Webb telescope as it sits out at Lagrange Point 2. And uh, it's got the, the heat shields are, are behind it here. See, those are the, it always has to keep those in, base, in place of the sun to keep the heat off of the telescope itself. It would, it would ruin it and it would take it way out of calibration and yada, yada, yada. So now what, what we have here, these are beautiful pictures that are coming in. Now we saw pictures similar to this when the Hubble telescope went up. Not quite to the depth that these are because this is a much larger dish on the James Webb and therefore it can gather more light and it's showing deeper uh, See, like this, this picture here, uh, you're, seeing, you're seeing whole galaxies in here where there wasn't much before. You see, you can, you can see this is pretty much void. Now, and this, is, this was one of the surprises that, was, that came to, uh, the, you know, when they got started getting the pictures back, uh, they, they did really had a problem with it. This is, uh, I believe this is Uranus. And they were not they've not been able to see clearly, as even in this picture, the the very uh, uh, light look of the circle around the planet. They weren't, they weren't able to ex examine it, but now they've had opportunities. Now, this is the Lagrange point. So, this spot right here is basically a million miles out from Earth. 
and it's an oper it's an it's a point at which the gravity from the sun mercury venus the earth and mars jupiter saturn and the others they they come and it's it's a point at which they can sit there's quite a few satellites actually in that spot if you will remember if you if you watch the the mercury capsules when they were sent up you remember when they were going getting up and making their first orbit around the earth and said oh we've got a we've got a shift to australia and then we've got a shift to california and then we got a shift back to florida well you see if you've got a if you, if you if you've got a, a a satellite that's your dish you can't you you go over the curvature of the earth you know, all your all your communication goes away and so this is this is where the 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 web James Webb telescope is this is where they plan to put the high definition telescope it's it's the same same area and this is where even those satellites are so that they are, they are covering the whole earth because during the Apollo program they never had to have blackouts because they couldn't keep track of them so basically the Australian and California ones became almost obsolete because they could do it all from Cape Canaveral so in the future the James Webb telescope they uh, they estimated it at 1.3 billion dollars. It came in at 9.2 billion. Now, the reason for that is there's a lot of development that had to be done. Now, you see this, this, this can give you some idea. This telescope right here is uh, 39 meters. That's the 128 feet, of roughly, of distance. That's what's now being built in the Atacama Desert. And it is adequately and so clear there that they can look up from the desert without distortion, without the pollution of lights and everything else, and they can, they can really measure and look at the stars that they're looking for. You see the, 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 relative, the relative size here. Uh, I don't think I can get back. But this, pop, this possibility is, is that, uh, let's see if it'll let me do it. Okay, so, so these telescopes, um, you can see the, the incrementing size. This is the James Webb telescope compared to this one, to the, the big one that's being built. It's enormous, and they're just getting bigger and bigger, and everybody's got to have one. India is building one. The Russians are building one. Uh, China is building two or three up in the mountains because they can get up in the Himalayas. They can get up in the high mountains as well because anybody that can get above the cloud line and suppress the, the light pollution will have a good chance of doing it. And the, segmented, the segmentation of the dishes now has all been figured out and so consequently they they don't have that kind of cost now this is how it's wrapped so you see you see they had to figure out how to fold it up into here and that's why if you remember if you followed the launching of the James Webb telescope it went it took it 
two or three days to get out to the Lagrange point. And then it took it nearly a week, if not more, to actually start the unfolding process to get out of this cocoon. You see, it's got it's to unfold all of this. It's got to open it all up. It's got to put all of the uh, uh, heat shields in place. They've all got to fall in place. And so that will help a lot toward uh, cutting costs on future. Now, what are they looking for? They're looking for first-generation stars. Well, what are they? Well, as the story goes, first-generation stars are exploded stars that spread their cores and the heavy elements that they had. Now, don't ask anybody how it got the heavy, heavy elements. Don't ask. You will get a circular reasoning given to you like you won't believe. But they, they, they did it. Now, this is where, this thinking is where the white hole cosmology comes from. Because these things exploded out, supposedly, into the universe and provided the seeding for all of the heavy, the heavy elements as well as the light elements. Well, you, you, you have to wonder. Uh, we have, after the Big Bang, some want to say, well, it was just hydrogen. Some want hydrogen and helium. Some want lip. Uh, so those are the highest votes, I think. It's when they argued about it. But you see, those aren't going to create iron. It just doesn't work. There's a lot of things that don't work. Now, here's where we find them. This is where the first generation stars are supposed to have been seen. So when they got on the James Webb telescope and they looked way out there, what they were looking for is remnants of the first generation stars. But they were taken aback because this is the development of the mature, the mature universe that we have today. They expected this spot back here to be just some more stars and little dinky uh, unit, uh, you know, galaxies and so forth, but they found the mature galaxies. They found them looking just like these galaxies, only a bajillion miles out here when they're looking at them. And if you will remember, that whole excitement just went, whoom. the cap went on it, it closed it off, nobody talked about it after that because there wasn't any explanation for why don't we have any first-generation stars right here? Why don't we have them? And why are there mature galaxies out here? Now, you see, that's kind of a, a duh, no-brainer, because God made it that way. He does, this isn't evolving. He made it this way. So, here we are then. The first generation stars are necessary. If you don't have them, what's going to happen? You aren't going to have the universe as we know it. And you see, this is part of the circular reasoning that comes through a lot 
when you start talking about this, these cosmologies, we exist, therefore, notice how clever this is, therefore we know there must have been first generation stars. Our plan couldn't possibly be wrong. And so we just go around in a circle. Yeah, well, if we're here, then the first generation had to be, because we know how this should work. We know how it should happen. We know where they should be. It doesn't happen that way. And it's, this is something you need to understand, that these researchers are looking back in time. That's what they think they're doing. But they're actually looking back in distance and assuming time. And that's really bad. Job tells us a lot of things about travel. I show you this because the next slide, I'm going to see if you can find it. This is the constellation Orion. I think, I think most of you can recognize this is Orion. This is Taurus the bull. And this is the Pleiades right here. Now, let's, uh, let's go to a cosmos. And so what we have is uh, right over here is Taurus. This is Orion right down here. Up here is Ursa Major, also known as the Big Bear or the Big Dipper. And off of the Big Dipper, you come down here to Polaris, which is the Little Dipper and the, or Little Bear. And then this thing, this guy right here, sometimes you can't see all the stars for it. That's Draco, that's a snake. That's what he's called, Draco. Okay, and uh, Job has a lot of things that God, God says to Job. God, if you look in chapter 38 and go to verses 31, 32, 33, it tells you that he's asking Job, have you ever tried to chain the Pleiades? Have you ever tried to loose the belt of Orion? Have you ever? He just goes on and on and on and tells ask us these questions. Amos 5.8 talks to us about the constellations. So what that really means is is that when we look up into the sky we're seeing the same thing that probably Adam saw. Maybe not quite in the pristine condition because of where he put it but that's always been up there. Always been up there. Job, Job lives somewhere between the Tower of Babel and Abraham, possibly argued, maybe Moses, but it's usually before Abraham, and he's seen all of these things. And so, uh, in summary, it's just, the, you know, God creates everything. There's no doubt about it. On day four, God created the sun, moon, and stars, and along with that, he put the lights for signs and seasons and days and years to give light on the earth. And Isaiah tells us that God stretched out the heavens like a curtain and spread them. And so we can count on God to have done exactly what he said, and we should always curtail our theorizing to make sure that it is consistent with what God's word says. Uh, before we hypothesize things that are either fantastical. Most of the things, most people will tell you 
No, Big Bang couldn't happen. But as one author once said and wrote, uh, he wrote, he wrote that, well, we don't have any other explanation, so we have to use the ones we've got, even though they're inadequate. Now, that's, that's pathetic, but that's, that's the truth that we have. So we'll have, we have, a, that's it, and I won't, I won't bore you anymore. And uh, it, was, it was interesting looking through all of this stuff and wading through piles and piles of uh, articles to see what people are thinking. And so let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us. We're grateful that you are our God and there's nothing too hard for you, that you've created all that there is, You've made heaven and earth, you've made light and dark, you've made everything, and that we can trust you to be right. In everything that you address to us, you are right. And help us to be able to and willing to submit to your authority on what you would tell us that is going on, that we keep the things that we theorize, uh, as we hypothesize, as we guess at, in line with the word of God, and leave it as our, our, our gold standard, as the, the only true truth that we've got, and we'll thank you for all that you can do and have done. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.